This is the ID Fanatic Podcast coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto on Tuesday, April 6, 2021. The podcast where we talk to real instructional designers for one half hour about their lives, their careers, and how they keep it all together. We're into the second month of this podcast, so I just want to celebrate that. My guest today is special. I supervised her as a practicum student when she was in the same program I had been in at Sheridan College in Oakville, Ontario. It was a postgraduate course put together by one Bob Jones, who had been through the Concordia University Educational Technology Program, and decided that two years of theory was not the best way to get an instructional design education. And so he turned it into one year of theory and practical application, including this practicum. So I was very glad to be part of it, and Christine was terrific to work with. We both ended up at the Royal Bank back in the 90s, and while my life has gone in many directions since then, she is still there. This gives us a chance to talk to someone who's been with the same employer for over 20 years. I should also mention that as an introvert, as many of us instructional designers are, I don't have a lot of very close friends, and Christine has been one of the closest for a long time, even when we only talk to each other twice a year. So with that introduction, I want to welcome to the show someone with deep experience in the learning space within a corporation, my friend, Christine Reese. That was a wonderful introduction. That was a wonderful introduction. And I'm so pleased to be talking to you today. Um, we're doing this just after Easter weekend. So uh, start off with, how was your Easter? Did you do anything special? Easter was lovely. I got to see Mummy on Good Friday, and I saw my sister and her family yesterday, and they brought me Jig's dinner. Her husband is from Newfoundland, and Jig's dinner is peas pudding and potato and carrot and my favorite salt ham and salt beef. It was just such a lovely thing, and it's like dinner for three days. You live in downtown Toronto, but for our two listeners' benefit, tell us where you grew up. I grew up in Waterloo, Ontario, and I went to school there. And I originally ended up in my like thing that I did out of high school was I was in technical theater arts, so that took me to Welland. And then I came back home after doing theater arts for a little while as a technician, like prop scenic painting and stage management. And it gave me such a wonderful start in terms of understanding where I am in the world and, I don't know, being a little bit more articulate and being a little bit more assertive about things. And uh, then I realized that I didn't know, I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, and when did you figure that out? Um, sort of have, when have I took... figured it out? <laughs> Is going to say... Have you grown up? That's the next question. I've been, I've, sort of, in some ways. So I think what happened was um, I, I was living with boyfriend, I don't know what number boyfriend, anyway, boyfriend in um, Kitchener at the time. And his friend um, had given him a brochure for Sheridan College coursework design and production um, when he was unemployed. And he was just starting to teach the scene design um, class for the coursework design program. And boyfriend never took the course, but fast forward, boyfriend and I have a not so amicable breakup and I'm packing and I find the brochure and I figure, well, I'm unemployed. I don't actually have anywhere to live because I was moving back in with my mom. She was so gracious. And I thought, why don't I take the program? 
and miracle of miracles, even though I was like out of school at this time, like by some years, I still qualified for an OSAP grant, the Ontario Student Loan Program. And I went to Oakville. I got accepted into the program, Miracle of Miracles again. And that like the rest became history. I felt like I fell onto a path that became take the course, get the job, and be good at what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's not what I planned to be when I grew up, but boy, did that work out for me. And then you started, you did practicum with me, and then you got into Royal Bank through uh, somebody else who took the program, our friend Doug Brubaker. Yes, and funny story about the practicum that you mentioned in our introduction. So when Bob Cook, the other Bob in the program, mentioned for the practicum, he said, well, I've got two possibilities for you that I think would fit. One's with someone who's very creative and one with somebody who's more corporate. And you're more likely to get a job in the corporate environment. Um, which one do you want to pick? And I figured I could do corporate any day. So I picked the creative and there you were. <laughs> so that was really cool. And you did that Wills program. Do you remember? No, <laughs> I did not. We took uh, TV shows that had families in them and thought, oh, well, well what happens if somebody dies? <laughs> what happens if somebody dies? Exactly. And, the, and they still remember a lot of that stuff. And one of the things that I also did not know, and this is like how sort of like naive I was coming into or coming out of like into the Sheridan program, um, was um, when we were, we, you, were doing a lot of the writing and the outlining for the course and stuff like that. We would go to Drexie's for a coffee and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're leaving the building to do work. And we're actually going somewhere that's, like, nice and, like, where I would go to do, like, homework and stuff. But this is, like, work work. I didn't know you could do that. And so it kind of set a tone for how my corporate life would be run when I joined <laughs> Well, I'm very happy to have had that influence. I don't I don't know that that's normal. <laughs> it's just the way I... You know, that's how you work. I've read a, I heard about a study once that uh, writers like to work in cafes because uh, 50, decimal, 50 decibels of background noise is sort of ideal for concentration. I, I think it's I think like... Block out if you want to focus. And I think rattling silverware has like as good an impact as like the shower does, maybe. So Yeah, there's a connection there, I think. So let's jump to the present. Tell us what it's like being at the same employer for twenty years. Where did you start off? How did that evolve to where you are today? And take your time, it's only a half hour show. <laughs> oh goodness. So I started out in operational training and I created courses. Um, such as debits and credits, working for a financial institution that was like um, very core to entry-level training. And I did a, a, what was referred to as a deportment course, as in how to behave. And it was eventually evolved into a customer service course. And then I got into developing my most fun courses that I had um, developing and it kind of went to, this is when I realized that I really liked what I was doing. We did an attendance management course. And the premise was uh, managers weren't dealing with attendance problems because they didn't know how. Um, so I was working with what I call a super SME. So the subject matter expert not only knew the content, 
she was in the position where she could change the process if she needed to. So the premise was that people weren't following the program. And the reason why they wanted to get people knowing the process was so that it would reduce the calls to the help center. So we, we, we did the program, we rolled it out. Six months later, the calls went up, not down. But it worked because the questions were better. So objective kind of not met, reduce calls to call center, but better objective met in the end, which was improve the process and have managers following it. So I thought that was when I was like, hey, this is, this is good. It works. And then learning management systems started to come in. So I moved away from doing formal learning development into learning management system, like management. We were doing computer-based training um, and through a learning management system starting in 1996. And then in 2006, we rolled out a proper, like the off-the-shelf learning management system. The other one was a proper one, but it was difficult to keep it up to date because it was being paid for by the company every time we needed to change or fix it. Web-based learning was also starting to make its foray. And we used to make jokes at the time that web-based learning, because of bandwidth and stuff like that, when it first came out, we were like, welcome to computer-based training in the 1980s because you can't do graphics, you can't do audio, you can't do video. There's like, it's all text on the screen again. And good luck if you want to go to the next screen because you might as well go get a coffee. So, and of course, bandwidth zoomed up within the next few years. So then all of a sudden learning management systems, web-based delivery became a thing. And I just, that's where I had the most fun. The corporate self-help books, a lot of them talk about understanding the why, um, the what are you doing and the why. And being able to describe, you know, that story about the, the meeting the janitor at the Nassau building and he said that he was helping putting men on the moon. And I've always thought, wow, I want to be able to describe what I do in such a philosophical way. And so I kind of settled on the fact that learning management systems are systems that are built that help instructional designers do what they do. So whether it's people signing up for facilitated like in class or facilitated virtual learning or taking the learning online. Um, it helps It helps the instructional designers deliver the experience. So I guess in my mind, I still felt like an instructional designer, but I was supporting the instructional designers now in the background and providing a system. And then the other thing that um, in the last, I'd say, five years that I've been kind of promoting is the idea that um, people get a perception of like the learning management system, depending on their experience of it, so whether it's they always do compliance training on it, then that's what it's for. Or if they always do like what I call explore or self-directed learning for self-development, they think that's what it's for. But the learning management systems now are trying to do both and they're kind of doing neither really well. Um, but it's the whole spectrum of self-directed um, to compliance, like the from the I, I want to do this because I've chosen to all the way over to I have to do it or I'm going to lose my job or my license. And then like all the way up at the top where it's like individual learning experiences all the way down to, um, you know, online 
where you just launch the course and take it as a complete self-study. No one's helping you through it. You have to do it yourself. Um, so, and, and it's that spectrum that we're trying to fit into now. And it's, it's, it, you have to be really clear on what you're trying to deliver to do it well. And that's what the designers need to do these days. And it's, it's hard, especially when you need it in multiple languages and have it accessible too. Yeah. There's so, I mean, for, for someone who like me, who hasn't dealt with, uh, LMSs, uh, very much, it seems like there's like a million of them out there now. It's, it's kind of merging with authorware. I think so. And I think there's some niche ones that are left where they're pure learning management systems. But in the environment that I work in for a very large corporation, um, the learning management system is part of the HR suite. So the HR suite is like HR management, compensation, benefits, goals, performance. It goes through the whole spectrum of the HR experience. And they're also trying to do a lot of self-serve and self-support. I'm getting married. I'm retiring. I'm having a baby. I need help with. I'm changing jobs, stuff like that. And then learning, even though publicly it's talked about a lot, like learning is very important, the actual learning component of a lot of these suites is neglected or in the case of some of the newer ones they're just coming up so th those are the ones that are especially they're trying to be either a self-directed um, learning experience system an lxs or some of them have a rather rudimentary um, compliance tracking because when it comes to compliance courses that's where it's like assigning tracking testing um, it's got a very like it's on one end of the spectrum where it's very hardcore test results pass fail how many tries did you take um, did you do it on time how many days after the due date did you take it when's your next due date um, you know what I mean like those elements they're just getting to the point of doing well again Whereas the original LMSs, they were more like, like, we joke that it's the learning and compliance system because so much of the compliance requirement is rolled out as training because it's so easy to track a pass-fail or an acknowledgement in an LMS. And there really isn't anything else that does that in that environment. So learning becomes kind of a catch-all for things as well as the workhorse of things so it's like and then maybe it feels like it's a secondary experience even though it's promoted as a primary way that companies develop their people is through learning the being part of the hr suite does that mean that it's integrated with other functions or it's supposed to be but it but it's not it's supposed to be and i think they're getting better at that so on one end it, it is because we don't have to get an upload from the HR system into the learning management system of people every day because you want to know who's active, who's on leave, who's left the organization, who's new what based on hire date, who's new based on their role. Um, you think about where they are in the organization and who's who, what country they're in, what language is their preferred language. Um, so that part comes right in through the system. It doesn't have to be an upload. But the part that's still lagging a bit is learning is still surprisingly siloed even in the suite system, as in there doesn't seem to be as much of a direct thing like when you think learning um, like performance development goals, like 
performance, how am I being rated, development, how, what do I need to do to go to my next role or how to develop in my current role. There should be a natural link, you would think, between learning and development, but they're not as closely connected. So if I'm in my performance or my goals and I'm saying, I want to be able to do this better, you'd think there'd be a more direct link over to the learning management system to pick how I'm going to learn to do that better. Um, but there isn't as much. You know, I think that's, I mean, that's when we, when we first started, I had these ideas about what workplace learning was going to look like by now. <laughs> and not, not just workplace work, learning education, that it could be. With computers, you're, you're able to uh, do a lot of processing before you even start the learning. Yes. You could do a lot of pre-testing. You could find out, okay, what does this person's personal kind of learning profile look like and therefore what do they need and let's send them here and there based on that so that they're always progressing. But that aspect of it has never really uh, been developed the way that I thought that it would be. Uh, you know, we're still sort of teaching everybody everything. I wrote a, in my blog the other day, about the advent of AI and wondering if, you know, that's one way that AI could help, uh, you know, help the future of the learning industry by being a bit more, uh, more analytical about how people are coming in and then matching learning to their needs. It is coming. It is coming. Because, I mean, we were talking about AI 20 years ago. We were talking about micro-learning 20 years ago. We weren't calling it that. We were calling delivering learning in smaller chunks. But it's like we were talking about all of this 20 years ago. But it's taken, like, YouTube and TikTok to make micro-learning a thing. And then the large, um, the large course distribution, like LinkedIn Learning and... Um, Coursera and some of the other ones that I can't think of offhand, they have like these large collections of courses and they have to organize their content somehow. And I th I'm hoping in the next few years that the skills or the categories they're using to organize their courses will converge so that finally skills or competencies like been there, done that, got the t-shirt on the competencies um, but they're kind of morphing into skills has become um, a little bit more generic. And so then when you're thinking about the hiring process, the skills that people are looking for, you're thinking about people moving to different jobs, the skills that they're developing, and then the learning that they're looking for to help them do that. Um, I think you're right. AI is going to start to be a thing. And there's AI, like, again, the suites are trying to do and the, the different large course like the the massive course distribution they're trying to do the the recommendations and stuff like that i think that's going to get better and i think it's going to converge yeah, recommendations engine that's true that's sort of something we can borrow from when we were talking the other day about what you want to talk about you said you like a good discussion of exam and testing <laughs> now, only an instructional designer would say that sentence what I'm more personally interested in is the story of how those issues have become so important to you. Okay, so way back when, when I first started out, and I was creating tests for like debits and credits and more concrete yes, no, right, wrong, very precise answers that people could pick. Um, those were easier. Uh, where I started to get myself into trouble was when I was doing like the attendance management course I mentioned and 
um, very early versions of anti-money laundering and code of conduct and privacy, they're less easy to come up with a multiple choice question that's relevant. One of my favorite things to look at is question analyses, um, where we get the, the spreadsheet of each question that was presented. This is the question stem. This is answer A, answer B, answer C, and then the, the the columns in the chart that show how many how many times or the percentage that answer A was picked, answer B was picked, answer C was picked, and then what was the correct answer. And I just find it entertaining when you're going down the list and you know you get your 80% of your questions are solid, people are getting them right more than 80% of the time, and you know, like whatever the bell curve is for that test. Because most of the time in the corporate world, you're trying to teach information that people will pass. And you present information in such a way that they will pass. And unless it's a fairly extreme customer service type of environment, they're open book tests. We don't want people guessing at the right answer. I want people to know where to look up the correct answer. So we had one question that was like spectacular, actually, and we left it. So the question was, where would you go um, if you had an employee privacy question? The two option answers were the customer privacy guidelines or the employee privacy guidelines. And I think perhaps because of the maybe the emphasis in our environment on customer and customer service and because we're a financial institution, again, customer privacy and stuff like that is extremely important. 60% of people were picking the right answer, but 40% of people were picking customer as the correct answer. It says, where would you go if you had an employee privacy question? And the employee privacy is like option B. Conceptually, people were having trouble with it. So we went back to the training to say, why are people picking the wrong thing? And the learning points in the course weren't that bad. Um, we, we improved them a little bit to hopefully get people into the test thinking employee privacy instead of customer privacy in this particular situation. But I guess it's just stuff like that where the exercise of is it a fair test? How is it asked? How is it scored? How many tries do people normally need to take? What is a fair question? What is an unfair question? Like an unfair question with a lot of negatives in it where people have to like cross out all the knots to figure out which ones, like are we talking about a positive thing here or a negative thing? Um, I just, those are the kinds of things I used to find fascinating. And it's only a few times that I would be working with another instructional designer where test craft, as I call it, is like good. You know, it was more, than, more often than not, I'd be getting the content onto the learning management system and testing it to make sure it was ready to go live. Because God forbid, I never wanted to be in a position where they're like, did you test this before you made it live to 40,000 people? The answer to that was never going to be no for me. So I would always go in and test it and I'd be in the test. And sometimes I would pass the test not knowing the content because I just picked the longest answer. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was just like, these are not good tests, people. <laughs> so... All right, so the next few questions are more about your personal life to give our listeners some insight about how you juggle your different roles, all right? Okay. All right, so you're single now. You weren't always. You're no. You're a daughter and a sister and an aunt. I am. Uh, now, don't get mad if this question is totally off base, but did you ever have any work-life conflict, or is your career central to your life? 
Um, I would say inadvertently my work became central to my life when I became single just because I had more time. Um, not to say that my relationship was cutting into my work life, God forbid. Um, but I do set some serious boundaries. Like I hate working weekends and I don't like working evenings. Um, and of course that kind of gets broken when I do have to test system upgrades on the weekends because that's the least likely time that people are in. Um, but I did have one, like those awkward moments where my boss is like trying to do something for his boss the next day. And I was off to my book club and I said, I stayed like cause the, where we were meeting was only five minutes away. I stayed until like what I considered the last possible moment. And I said, I have to go. And he's like, but I need this for tomorrow. And I'm like, I have book club and I have people waiting for me. I have to go. I can come back later, like in an hour and a half. <laughs> so it's like I ditched my boss for book club one time. <laughs> but, um, other than that, uh, I do try to keep some balance. Um, but I do find sometimes I'm like pondering things on the weekend and I have to go in and make a note of something I don't want to forget for Monday. But I don't want to do it on Saturday when I was thinking about it. Yeah. Um. Final question, you know, when we're out of pandemic, what, what are you most looking forward to returning to doing? My mom and I got to eat out at a restaurant on Friday when we got together and it was like completely like we were at a booth for six people sitting at opposite ends of it and stuff like that. But things that I used to take for granted are certainly a treat. So to your point, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the things that I'm just going to appreciate that much more. Aha. Uh, yes, that's the two-minute warning. So to wrap up, I know that, like me, you've been a viewer of the Actor Studio interviews on PBS. So I like to ask the same 10 questions they always ask at the end of that show, which, as a trivia buff, you'll be interested in this. They were originally called the Pivot Questionnaire. Oh. A French series, Bouillon de Culture, posted by a man named Bernard Pivot. 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 Yeah. Okay. So the idea is to say the first thing that comes to mind. All right. All right. What is your favorite word? Etymology. The root of words. Did what I say it right? Etymology. That's. And <laughs> now I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Bullied. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, connecting with people, which is something I have to um, think about doing, because like you mentioned at the top of the show that there's a lot of introverts in instructional design. And so I had to learn that reaching out to people is important to me as a person and being with them is important. What turns you off? <sighs> Following rules and passive aggressive people. What is your favorite curse word? Everything that George Carlin said you can't say on TV. Which you can now, apparently. Which you can now. So fuck me, I can say that now. <laughs> <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Mm, I guess silence or being out in nature is my favorite. What sound or noise do you hate? I'm going to steal this one from my sister. 
crinkling plastic, especially when someone's trying to do like unwrapping a candy really slowly, or like you're on the phone and they're taking something out of a plastic bag. It's like you just want to slam your hand down on it and tell them to stop it. (laughs) What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Currently, I should qualify, not not in the past, just I understand. Today. Today I think I would like <laughs> no offense to quitting my job, but quit my job and do nothing and then figure out what I would like to do. What profession would you not like to do? Anything that requires consistency. Such as? Um, well I worked at a, a laundry place where they washed like tablecloths and uniforms. And you fed them through the the iron thing with somebody else usually. Um, And then they come out and you had to fold them. And there's a certain mindlessness in that routine where it kind of freed up my brain. But my piles were not very neat. (laughs) The final question shows its European origins. But if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I suspect welcome. Because I guess I've heard they welcome atheists and and all sorts there now. So I'd probably, I'd like to hear welcome. And there's a great buffet. (laughs) It's to die for. So to speak. So so that's, that's the end. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this, especially at the last minute. Thanks. It's been a blast. It's been fun. The ID Fanatic drops every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I hope you're inspired to subscribe and to get notices of upcoming episodes. Sign up at theidfanatic.com. You'll also get a free gift of my instructional design cheat sheet. You can contact me, Mitch Moldovsky, on LinkedIn, and I hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye, bye, bye.